0: Good morning, it's good to be with you on this service where we honor the Lord in this resurrection. I hope it's been a blessing for you so far today. We've been here since early this morning, and so if you've been here from the start, congratulations, you're still awake and back with us. You must have had enough coffee to carry you over, but uh, it's a blessing to be with you. If you're a guest here today, we're glad that you're here. I hope it's a blessing for you. We're going to break from our normal verse-by-verse teaching through 2 Corinthians. I want you to turn back, if you would, to 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. You would, as we uh, begin to take a look at this passage under our consideration, and I hope it's a blessing for you. And of course, I hope this is not the first time you've been in the Word this week. Because if it is, you're starving this morning, and that's not what the Lord wants you to do, and that's not where you, how He wants you to be with His Word. So make sure you take some time to be in the Word each day. You can find a Bible reading calendar there on in the foyer, and that can help you do that. Or you can go on U Version, and they've got a lot of uh, a lot of Bible calendars that can get you through. Uh, Bible in a year. And then the blessings of what the scripture has to say to you and and the holy standard that's held up before you so you know how to conduct yourself is there and then you'll understand really God who doesn't change has dealt with multiple situations very similar to what we're going through and you can feel very confident that the Lord is in control of all things. Vice President George H.W. Bush represented the U.S. at the funeral of former Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev. Bush was Deeply moved by the silent protest carried out by Brezhnev's widow, she stood motionless by the coffin until seconds before it was closed, and just just a few moments before the soldiers touched the lid, Brezhnev's wife performed an act of courage and and hope, and a gesture probably that must surely rank among the most profound acts of civil disobedience ever committed. She reached down into the coffin and made the sign of a cross on her husband's chest, there at the linen mausoleum on Red Square, a symbol of secular humanism and atheistic power, the wife of the man who had run all of it hoped that her husband was wrong. She hoped that there was another life and that that life was best represented by Jesus who died on a cross and rose again, and then hope of all hopes that that same Jesus might yet have mercy on her husband. She was right in that Brezhnev was wrong, there was much more, but the most heartbreaking part of that drama was that it was too late for him. Salvation can come to the living because of Christ's resurrected life. Once you have passed into death, you are sealed wherever you were, and Paul was always concerned lest someone missed the unparalleled importance of that truth and the truth of the resurrection and the hope that it can bring to people. And it's that truth that we're going to look at today. Of course, I'd like you to tur- turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. And we're going to read all the way through verse 4. That'll be our passage for today. And we'll be going verse by verse through this, and I hope it's a blessing to you. Now I make known to you, Paul says, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which, verse 2, also you're saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, verse 3, 4, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, verse 4, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Let's back up and just take a look at a few things I think that will help be helpful as we think about this very important thing that Paul is going to do. I make known to you, brethren. So Paul is reiterating something, if you understand it in context. He's talking to the church at Corinth. This is a church that he founded, a church he stayed and preached 18 months. And the verb is present active indicative. So here's the thing. Paul isn't reminding them of the gospel. He is saying, I'm currently telling you what it is. Which I think there's a reproof there if you understand uh, the words. It appears that some of the Corinthian church were evidently far from Uh, knowing and understanding and appreciating the gospel. Uh, But it wasn't because they'd never heard it before, because Paul said, look at the next phrase, which I preached to you. It's aorist, active, indicative. So at a point in the past, that's aorist, Paul made the good news clear to the Corinthian church. So they'd heard it before, much like perhaps you have. Uh, Obviously, they had heard him say it, and so uh, they also didn't know how important it was. And then, which you also received, he says, again, eris active, again at the point in the past, they received his teaching, they'd heard it, and they had affirmed it, and they had not rejected the message of the gospel. So, uh, the early, uh, early in this point in time, uh, some point in time in the past, in the in the course of Paul's ministry there, they had recognized it as important, even if they didn't fully understand it, they certainly understood that it was important. Paul goes further, and he says, in which you stand. And this is perfect active, so sometimes translated, in which you abide. So First uh, John 4.15 has the same word, so we can get the idea. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So certainly, some of the Corinthian church believers, of course, on having received the gospel Paul had preached, were able to experience a reality of being permanently established. And we understand that Jesus is able to save forever those who, who believe in him. So it's not a question of whether or not they were saved and cast out. Certainly the scripture is very clear about that. So some had heard and they understood and they stood perfectly in that, that security. And then verse 2 he says this. He says, by which also you are saved. And this verse is present passive indicative. And the passive voice means the subject is being acted on. So that means in the power of the gospel, They were saved. The power of the gospel is acting on the individual, and they were saved. So the gospel that Paul is explaining to them, he has explained to them before, and the gospel created the reality where a believer could be fixed in a spot, permanently established, a firm foundation. But it was also the vehicle, it's the means by which a conveyance that God used to bring about the salvation of the individual. The gospel is a conveyance for for redemption. So Paul is speaking to people who had perhaps... Lost the passion for the gospel, uh, speaking perhaps to people who uh, even had the ability to appreciate and communicate it, and lost that that desire to do it, which is much like the modern church. Very few are witnessing, very few are spreading the gospel, which is five times in the gospels the Lord clearly said that is supposed to be the main job of those who remain. And then, of course, there's always the danger uh, that Paul was always concerned about that they'd never been saved to begin with. So he's going back through and he's giving them the gospel. In Romans 10, 10 verse 17, it's very similar. It's the same thing he describes this process, and I think it's important as we lay this foundation. It's something we've heard before, but on Resurrection Sunday, I think it's important to revisit it. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from, by what? Hearing. Uh, So in other words, this is the result of the gospel. Faith comes as a result of hearing the gospel. The gospel is a vehicle through which the Holy Spirit goes to work. It's not something wise men have thought up. It's not something... Uh, achieved by intuition or, or meditation or mysticism or speculation or philosophizing or somehow working through all the false religions somehow you came to it and you discovered it on your own. It comes as a message and the hearer has to hear it. And that's what Paul did when he explained belief and confession in Romans 10, 9 and 10. We look at that passage a lot. It is part of a presentation of the gospel that's sound. If someone's saved, if someone calls on the name of the Lord, if someone believes and confesses, it will be as a result of hearing a clear message of the gospel. Let's look at the last half of the verse. So it says, um, and hearing by the word of Christ. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So again, salvation does not come as a result of a message a man has thought up. Uh, it, it, and I think it's possible that's Paul's point in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He is actively giving them the gospel because even though he had preached it to them previously, even though they had received it when it was given to them, even though some had found in it a place to be firmly affixed, uh, they didn't have the have it right when they were giving it out, or they were not evaluating it or evaluating it correctly, or they weren't even born again to begin with. So, according to Romans 10:17, if you want to really kind of boil this down, First Corinthians 15:2, how do you get saved? By faith. Faith comes by hearing. How do you understand how to do it? By hearing the message of the word of Christ. And what's the content of the message? Well, the significance of Christ, the word about Christ, the knowledge of Christ. And what is that? Well, Paul tells us that in the passage. In 1 Corinthians fifteen three, he said, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, verse 4, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So let's put it all together. So salvation can come to those who hear the word about Christ and then respond in faith, or to say it like it says in Romans 10, 9, Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. So the gospel comes, and it acts on the individual, and it creates the substance of the confession. And there's a specific information that is conveyed by the gospel that Paul preached that must be confessed. And verse 9 tells us that, that if you confess with your mouth... Jesus says Lord. And that word confess is homologo. It's a compound word. The first is an adverb, it's homo, it's together. And then the second part is logos, word. So you're speaking a word together with. That's what's implied. So taken together, it's aorist active subjunctive, so it's conditional. If you confess through the mouth Jesus the Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And if you don't, then what's the other side? You won't be. See. That's the whole point of the passage. If you confess. So It's a conditional statement, and it means to agree. That's what it means to confess, to say together, to agree together with what's been said. There's an express set of facts that have to be confessed. The words used of making a legal confession in Acts 20.14, which may refer to a public declaration. So it's the same idea expressed in Matthew 10.32, or everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. So in particular here, Paul points out that the word of faith which he has been preaching includes a verbal agreeing with the fact of Jesus' rightful position. Simply here in verse 10, if your mouth says the same thing, it results in salvation. Now what does your mouth have to say? Well, verse 9, Jesus as Lord. Now here's the thing because salvation has been watered down so much and people have the impression that they're giving the gospel but they're not actually saying what Paul says needs to be said. So people confess to all kinds of things but not the right kinds of things. What does your mouth have to say? Jesus is Lord. Now here's the question: That doesn't mean that you know that Jesus is Lord. It doesn't mean that you know He's deity. It can't mean that because, if you remember in Matthew 8:29, Jesus is in the in the country of the Gadarenes. He's casting out demons, and when He speaks to the demons, here's what they say: They say, they cried out, saying, "What business do we have with each other?" And here's the word they used to refer to Him: Son of God. Have you come here to torment us before our time? So they understood His true position. They understood He was the Son of God. They knew He was deity. See. Confessing Jesus as Lord can't mean that you know he's deity. Will demons willingly confess Jesus as Lord? No. They know he's deity because they use Son of God. They know who he is, but they won't acknowledge him as Lord, see? And how about national Israel during the time of Jesus' time on earth? Did they confess Jesus as Lord? Hardly. Not only would they not confess him as Lord, they didn't even think he was deity, and they put him on a cross and killed him. Jesus was an irritant, and he was a stumbling block to the Jews. True saving faith is believing and confessing Jesus is Lord. So it's not just Lord meaning deity because the demons of the Gadarenes did that. See, the demon faith of James 2.19, we'll see in just a minute, is the same way. You believe God is one, that's great. Demons do too. So the idea there is, is that it's a confession of something. So confessing or saying the same thing about something is to say everything that Jesus said. So Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior. Jesus is the sinless one. He's the sacrificial lamb that points, that all other sacrifices pointed to. Jesus is the conqueror of death. He's the soon coming king. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, and you can go on and on, right? When you ask somebody what does, what is, who is Jesus, when you think about him to you, these are the kinds of things that come out, right? Um, he, he's fulfilled all the promises of God to men. He, he has the right to judge and he will judge. Uh, there's a judgment coming which should be feared that men must repent. Everything Jesus said has gotta be part of that confessing Jesus is Lord. It can be born into a, a living hope. It, there's a home in heaven. Uh, Jesus lives. Those who believe will live also. And so confessing is confessing that Jesus has complete authority over you. That's what has to be the case, not that just Jesus is deity. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. No one may have told you that you have to confess Jesus as Lord over you to be saved. But I will say that no one who is truly saved has not come to that conclusion. You've come to that conclusion because it's impossible for you to be saved if he's not the boss of you. And we'll see that in just a minute. Because Paul's going to have a little caveat here to make sure he warns those who perhaps just made a, a mental acquisi- uh, acquiescence to the facts of the gospel. So with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That's the whole point. If you confess Jesus as Lord, and then Roman sentence says, and with the mouth he confesses, and that results in salvation. So confesses to you say the same thing as another. So who are you saying the same thing as? Well, Jesus, for sure. And, or who do we say it with? We're saying it with God as well. Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. So they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus has revealed his glory in some respects, and he's talking with some of the patriarchs. And Peter's talking, of course, and saying things that are completely ridiculous. Uh, let's just stay on this mountain and build three tabernacles, and everything will be great. And the Lord interrupts him from heaven And in a cloud, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, hear what he says because he's in charge. In John 17, verse 1, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He begins to pray, and he says, listen to his words. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. So here's the deal. Jesus just repeats what God has said about him and given to him. And what has God given to Jesus? Authority over all flesh. And that's the, that's the rub. See, to come to salvation, you have to confess Jesus as Lord of you. But someday, everybody will confess Jesus as Lord. The Bible's pretty clear about that. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody's going to do it, regardless of what they think about it, how much they, they think it's ridiculous, how, how they've scorned it, how they've rejected it. Eventually, everyone will bow the knee because that's, that's how God is. See, this is his world. He makes the rules and you obey and you do what he says. You can do it willingly and you can come to faith. That's why Brezhnev was not saved by his wife making the sign of the cross on his chest. He'd already made his decision in life. But she hoped that somehow the power of the cross would have resurrected him. And the power of the cross would have resurrected Brezhnev in spite of all his sins because they're just as wicked as all of our sins if he would confessed Jesus as Lord. But he did not, did he? Now, Jesus just repeats what God has said about him, and that's he has authority over all flesh. Eternal life is defined here, then, as knowing God and knowing Jesus. And what do you think we need to know? And that's the word gnosko. What do we need to understand? What do we need to comprehend about them? Well, the fullness of their nature and their power and their attributes. And the specific information that must be believed is listed for us as well. And believe in your heart. So confess Jesus is Lord, and then what? Believe in your heart. So, so appropriate for today, Right? And so I think everything is key here. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. You're not, in other words, you're not going to be saved if you don't confess Jesus as Lord. You're not going to be saved if you don't believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. So you have to believe from your heart, from the inner person, from as deep as you can go in your personality. Just kind of define this for you. From the core of your existence, that's what, you have to, that's what has to be most true about you. What do you believe? God raised him from the dead. Why did the Holy Spirit lead Paul to isolate this? Well, because of this. The physical bodily resurrection from the dead demonstrates that Jesus was who he said he was and did all he said he came to do. It's very simple. It was the authentication and the verification of the ministry of Jesus. And that's why it's isolated, and the Scripture tells us this so clearly. So the message then, again, is the vehicle through which God brings salvation. Romans 10, 9, believe in your heart. God has raised him from the dead. So when you do this, you're doing more than just believing an isolated historical event. Many do that. If they were raised in church, and I've witnessed to many people were raised in church, they believe in the isolated historical event that Jesus was raised from the dead. They can tell you all the stories. But it has to be true for you that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And you have to believe that to be true. And in order to be saved, that has to be true of you. So when you believe from the truest part of you, the deepest part of you, that you're truly embr- you, you are really embracing the most important dynamic of realities, the resurrection, which confirms that Jesus is the Son of God and confirms everything else he just said about himself. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the sinless one. He's the sacrificial lamb. He's the conqueror of death. He's the soon-coming king. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, and on and on. That man can be justified, and that all the promises of God are true, and that man must repent, and he has the right to judge, and he will judge, and there's a judgment coming, and we should be worried about it, and you can be born into a living hope, and, and because Jesus lives, all those who believe will live also. See, everything keys on this. It's all bound up in the resurrection. It's part of the presentation of the gospel that's true, that can actually have change associated with it, and that's why Paul resets to this point. All of that's bound up in the resurrection. That's what you embrace from the deepest part of who you are when you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. So your heart, beloved, no matter what, where you may have been, and you may be sitting in here and you, you would consider yourself a Christian all your life, your heart has to avow all that the resurrection intended for it to avow. And you have to believe that with all your heart. You believe in your heart the verification of all Jesus came to be and to do. Salvation comes through the vehicle of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit goes to work so that person can believe from their innermost being that God has raised Jesus from the dead, which verifies everything that Jesus said about himself, and a person must confess that Jesus has all authority over their life, and they willingly submit to that authority. Salvation can come to those who hear the word about Christ and believe and confess Salvation can come to those who hear the word about Christ and call on his name. Knowledge comes before faith or believing or confessing. And I witnessed lots of people who've just gone to church all their life and they've always had a relationship with God. Listen, when I hear that, I'm super concerned because you haven't had a relationship with God all your life. It's impossible. You have to confess and believe. If you're going to come to faith, that's how it looks. Now, you may know how to conform to Christianity. It doesn't mean that you are a Christian which is why Jesus had so much to say in warning, and we're going to see that in just a minute, about people who did all kinds of churchy things. He just said, Wides the path and broad the way that leads to destruction, narrows the path that leads to salvation, and few that find it. And then he went on to say, Many of you will say, Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I do this? All kinds of churchy things. And you know what he'll say? Depart from me, you workers of, and this is the actual word, lawlessness. What's that mean? That means the track of the life was not in line with the gospel and your confession that Jesus is Lord, because if Jesus is Lord, you obey His commands, and his commands are not burdensome see so everything keys on that, and it's important it creates a lot of discouragement inside the churches because people say, you know I, I, I went up as a child and I, I did what, whatever said if the life doesn't track out in this Body, generated fleshly body, ungenerated fleshly body, unregenerated, which is going to have its appetites. Your life doesn't track out in that direction. There's, there's some question about what actually went on. Now back to our passage, 1 Corinthians 15.1. So Paul says, and this is why he comes here, he says, and comes to this point, part way through our first letter of Corinthians, the second one, we know it's the second one that he wrote to them, we don't have the first one. He says this, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand. Now you understand that now because we laid some groundwork. By which also you are saved, now here it is, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So are we saved because we hold the word fast? No. We're saved because the gospel was responded to. It's the vehicle by which salvation can come, and it's an established set of facts that must be believed and confessed. But the track of the life is holding fast to the word which I preached to you Unless, and here's the caveat, you believed in vain. So Paul's setting the stage in order to reiterate the gospel. These are born-again people who had lost the passion for the gospel, perhaps the ability to appreciate its power, and the motivation to communicate it to someone else in the ministry of the gospel, or perhaps not saved at all, which describes a lot of the modern church. But it wasn't because they'd never heard it before, because they had. And it wasn't because they didn't understand it, because they had accepted it. And it wasn't because they hadn't experienced the power of the gospel, because some uh, had, and they had created this secure foundation in life, a fixed standard of living. It was the vehicle, it was the means of conveyance God used to bring about salvation. And so it says, hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. It's by this you're saved, he said, and that word saved, sozo, present passive indicative again, it is to rescue, it's to deliver from destruction, it's to bring about wholeness. That's what happens when you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You are saved, so you have to, by default, believe that you are what? Lost. See, and that's really lost on a lot of people, I witnessed. I remember one time sitting across the table from someone I'd been invited over to, dinner, my wife and I, and, and these folks were friends, and they had brought their family in, and as often happens when I'm at dinner, somebody would say, well, you're a pastor, yeah. And then I, I'm always interested to see what's going to be said next. And this lady said, I've always been a really good person. That was the next thing out of her mouth. And I just thought, well, she's just establishing a pecking order here. You know, I got it. She wants me to know that she's up there and I, I don't have to evangelize her. And so I just said, well, that's great. I mean, I, and I appreciate that. And I'm sure you are a very moral person. I I'm just asking, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever told a lie? And she's like real quiet. Have you ever used the word of God in vain? Have you ever wanted something somebody else had? So, if the answer was yes to any of those, and probably yes to all those, because all of us have done that, right? Then you broke three of God's top ten. Now, he could have had a top hundred, and they would have been just as fixed and just as important, but he boiled it right down to ten things you make sure you don't do, and you've done three of those. So, I understand your comment, I'm a good person. Relative to other people, you're a relatively moral person. That by itself, though, does not set the standard by which you're received by God. We don't even keep our, our own, eva- I mean, we, we have certain standards we want to keep for ourselves, right? On a day-to-day basis, you have things you want to accomplish, things you want to make sure you don't do, things you want to make sure you do, do, right? Everybody has that. And we don't even make those standards, do we, most of the time. So what makes us think somehow we've achieved God's standards? And that's, but see, that's the place people have to get to. It's impossible to give them the gospel if all you say is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Wouldn't you like to have someone who never leaves? Wouldn't you like a love that never ends? You know, and so what you're doing is you're putting all the benefits of salvation out there as if that's the gospel, and people say, yes, I would, yes, I would. But what does the Bible say? You have to lose your life to find it. You have to confess Jesus as Lord over you and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, which means that you had a sin debt you couldn't pay, and Jesus took it for you. That's a whole lot different than wanting a love that never ends and, and uh, God has a, loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Listen, you can't start the gospel that way. Paul never did. You don't find that anywhere in the scriptures. The benefits of salvation are not the gospel. And so Paul wants to reset it. So either they, they don't have a great appreciation for the gospel and the facts of the gospel or they're not giving it out at all or they might not even be saved but think they are because they, they agree mentally with the things they know to be true. So The idea of being saved is to be redeemed. It's to be Uh, delivered from destruction. It's a continuous action, so it's present tense. So the individual is being acted on by an outside source. That salvation is always that. God's power is what saves you. God's power is what raised Jesus from the dead. It's what saves you. And it's going to work through the presentation of the gospel. And so the idea here is that the believer is being saved. That's the idea, because it's a continuous action. And we saw how that happens. It's a volitional act of confessing and believing, right? That's on your part. But Jesus did this in the past. It's a completed act. And he continues the process of salvation all the way through sanctification and glorification. So the gospel is a vehicle through which the Holy Spirit goes to work. And it comes by hearing a message. And if someone's saved, if someone calls on the name of the Lord, if someone believes and confesses, it will be as a result of hearing the clear message of the gospel. And then Paul gives this condition in the last part. So he says this, If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And as I said before, that's a qualifying statement. Kata kete, hold fast, that has to do with a sailing term. It's checking the compass. It's checking the headway. A lot of people think, you know, I come to faith, and then I'm fine. God just forgives everything, and I do what I want. Listen, you've missed the whole point of giving up your life. I mean, Romans chapter 6 is very clear. So those who are dead to sin, shall they continue in sin any longer? May it never be. It doesn't mean that you walk in perfect uh, perfection before the Lord, but the headway of the ship has to be in the direction of sanctification. It's there because the Holy Spirit's inhabiting you if you're truly saved, and he's the one who makes you feel guilty when you don't do what you're supposed to do. He's the one that brings about a sense of, uh, of a desire to be pleasing to the Lord and conviction that comes from being displeasing to him, and you're seeking him and asking him forgiveness, and, and as we came to the table on Friday night on Good Friday, you know, you're examining yourself, See, you know, unbelievers aren't having this conversation. I'm a good person. I'm fine, you know. But believers get the Holy Spirit to help them stay on course. So Paul says you're going to hold fast. You're going to guide the ship on the right course. The idea that the life continues, here it is, to be guided by the gospel, and that's the continued proof of salvation. It's not because you hold fast that you get saved. You hold fast because you are saved. Present active indicative. And that's the whole question, whether they were even saved to begin with. So Paul's giving the gospel out. It's a continuous, habitual action that believers involved with, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. That's the mood of reality. That's how it works. And it really sums up what the scriptures teach us. And that explains a lot about what goes on in the name of Christianity over the years. It's like, how in the world could that possibly be? Now, I will say that Christians can be caught up in the same types of sins that the unredeemed world can be caught up in. The difference is what happens afterwards. But if it's a pattern of, un, of the unregenerate, if, if there's a whole separate life going on apart from what w- is going on before people, and you know that, see, people as they're alone by themselves. and That's it, why I always encourage you to be in the Word. It holds up the holy standard before you. Are, you. are you submitting to that holy standard? You know whether you are or not. And if you're not, and the ship's not headed in that direction, then you fall into this category unless you believed in vain, see. If people profess to believe the gospel, but have not given or are not giving, mark this, beloved, due consideration to what that implies and what it demands, they do not really trust Christ. They're not holding fast to the gospel, and that shows that they've never been redeemed to begin with. Now, it's a very common theme in the Word of God, and we looked at it numerous times, over and over again. Uh, James two nineteen, pretty direct and to the point. James says this: do "You believe that God is one, so you can think about yourself. Well, I believe in God. Well, great." James says, "Demons believe in God that God is one. You do well. That's what James says. You, demons also believe and shudder. They even shudder. They know God exists. They've refused to subject themselves to Him as Lord, and they shudder at." what they know will be the end result of all of that. That still doesn't draw them towards a redemptive relationship. It's a superficial kind of faith, an external kind of belief, an intellectual acquiescence, if you will, that lacks the obedience to anything else Jesus has said about himself. And this is a common theme of the Word of God, but um, numerous warnings. But Paul comments here at the end of verse 2, just illustrates the common warning about uh, disbelief. And, uh, Paul says, if you hold fast, unless, he says, you believed in vain. In other words, a fruitless act in the past, it's Eric's active indicative. In the past, something happened, but it had no purpose. That's the whole point. You believed in vain. It's fruitless. So, you see, some people fall into that category, right? But I mean, if you asked people, are you sure you're really saved? Sure. But if everyone who was sure they were saved were actually saved, then there would be no need to have any warning. Would there be? I mean, if you thought you were saved and that was good enough, would that then preclude every warning? If God was just going on what you think about yourself and not the objective standard that he set in his word? See, this is really important. So they received information, but they were not willing to confess or to say the same thing, homo, regarding themselves as the gospel describes them. They believed the facts of the gospel but thought they were okay. They didn't really believe that they were sick in sin, which is exactly how scripture describes us. And when men and women don't hold fast to the gospel, it's because they love their sin. That's the reason. See, They don't want to come and have it exposed. Uh, they avoid or reject the gospel because it signs a very bright light into those dark corners. Instead of coming when the light comes on and saying, Lord, I'm I'm unworthy, and I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman. Please redeem me. I confess you are Lord, and you have the right to demand this of me, and I give myself to you. I lose myself for your sake, and I know that my sin was severe enough that it caused Jesus to go to the cross, and God has raised him. I believe I needed that. Without it, I'm lost. See, They're unwilling to do that. Instead, they love their sin. They're unwilling to say the same thing about Jesus that we see in the word, and that's important. You have to confess. You have to say the same thing. But those that are saved are the ones who are characterized by holding fast. So you get that. Now, um, Colossians one twenty three. again, we see the same kind of thing. If indeed, Paul says, you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So the idea is, you know, you're born again, but you indicate that you're born again because you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. So you're fixed in such a way that you're not going to be moved. And that's precisely what Paul said the gospel did when we at the first part of our passage, right? He said it's a fixed place where you can be secure because that's how the gospel is. But if you're moved away from the hope of the gospel, it's not that you lost your salvation. If you move away from your first profession or whatever that was, then you just indicate that you were never redeemed to begin with. The outworking of saving faith is holding fast. The outworking of saving faith is continuing in the faith firmly established. And there are dozens of other places we could look at, we just don't have time. But the one who recognizes his deity and lives that way, the one who respects his authority and fears it, the one who honors his majesty and worships it, the one who accepts his word and does it, the one who submits to his sovereignty, the one who trusts his mercy for his deliverance, and, and like today, the one who believes in the resurrection and hopes in it, those are saved. See? And this is a powerful message. If believed, if confessed, produces a life change. Is reiterated by Paul in, in verses 3 and 4. So he says, For I deliver to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So this is a condensed, powerful set of statements that changes everything. This is the foundational, beloved, This is the foundational set of facts that took a broken, scattered set of followers of Jesus and turned them into martyrs of the faith. This is the set of facts upon which the church was established, especially that last part, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Why? Because the two things you have to do to be saved is confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It is the foundational fact that has to be true in the innermost part of you. And once you get to that point, we won't do this today, you're at the end of verse four, the whole chapter after that really just expounds on that one statement. What would happen if he hadn't have come and died? And what if he wasn't raised? And then what's the outcome of the fact that he has been? And the whole chapter really expounds on that. And it's that statement that's caused the world so much consternation, like Christ is raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and, and according to Paul, it's really basic. It's really, if you, to use an older word, fundamental to the faith. And when people hear that, they get, you know, kind of uh, feeling weird. You know how people describe fundamental: not enough fun, too much damnation, and not enough mental. You know, you're just kind of sucking it in. You're not thinking about it. But we've observed, and I think it's a good illustration. We've observed over the course of several years, and especially recently that not only are we a basket of deplorables and the dregs of society and Neanderthals most recently, but um, because we believe in the sanctity of human life and the biblical definition of marriage and and sinfulness of a homosexual lifestyle and a, and a conservative o- approach to freedom and the Constitution and the Supreme Court and limited government and personal responsibility and all that, that just throws us in a basket to be ridiculed according to uh, those who are in power now. But there's something else that outdates that basket of ridicule in terms of um, and I, although I think that they're Connected, If you believe the resurrection to be saved, of course you have to, you are also no fun too quick to damn and not mental enough because you're getting thrown into a basket where you're going to be ridiculed. And we looked at this already uh, and it isn't new. We saw an example of it Friday night actually from a few years ago. Remember I told you that uh, at Yale somebody had taken a cross and and painted ROFL on it and placed it in the center of Yale's campus as if the cross makes you roll on the floor laughing. There's was a big discussion, and you can read about it. A bunch of articles written about whether or not Christians deserve to be uh, ridiculed for their faith, and and uh, very very unlike first century church. Oh, Christians shouldn't be ridiculed. It seems odd that Jesus on his on the cross said, "Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews," which was ridicule. Here's what we do to kings of Jews: we murder them. And so it's not the first time ridicule comes. But First Corinthians chapter one verse eighteen, it's not new. In fact. For the word of the cross is, here it is, foolishness to those who are perishing. So it's foolishness to the people you're going to witness to. The word of the cross, which they have to believe Jesus died and rose and God raised him from the dead. That's foolishness to the perishing. So when you first give it, if you're really giving the gospel, if you're trying to make it sweet, if you're trying to make it attractive to everybody, if you're trying to make the church so that all unbelievers feel comfortable, then you're not going to say this because this is going to be ridiculed, okay? Okay. Word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It is the power of God. That's how change occurs, right? Salvation is God acting on an individual who's confessed Jesus is Lord, believed in your heart, God raised him from the dead. First Corinthians 1, 23, very similar. But we preach Christ crucified. There it is again. What do we preach? How great it is to be in church and how God loves you and whatever. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews' a stumbling block and to Gentiles' foolishness. But to those who are the called, that's those who have received it, those who have come to faith, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It is the power of God, see. It's salvation. If if you're at a church where they just make you feel good about yourself all the time, I would say they're not preaching Christ crucified because you can't preach Christ crucified and they'd be happy in the sin that you're sitting in, okay? So there's really no middle ground here, is there? I mean, when you embrace the resurrection at salvation, you permanently place yourself in a place of ridicule. But Paul says that is precisely where the power of God and the wisdom of God are found. And it's really the basics, it's fundamental, it's foundational, it's indispensable. Now let's look back at that first statement that Paul makes. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That two very important verbs, delivered and received. Both of those are aorist, active, indicative. It just means that at a point in the past this message was delivered to you. At a point in the past I passed the message on, it was delivered to me rather, and at a point in the past I delivered the message on to you both times aorist, both times in the past, I received it, and in the past, uh, I delivered it to you. And the adjective modifier is superlative, of first importance. So the idea there is, first in rank, first in influence, first in honor, primary. I received the most important thing, and I pass it on as the most important thing. And that takes the whole passage to a whole nother level, does it not? We have a lot of things we think we need to pass on Uh, as ministers in the church and as ministers in the community. I would would propose to you that there are only a few things you really need to pass on, and, and they have to do with this. A couple of things we need to understand here. Paul didn't originate the message that he gave them. He's simply passing on what he had received. Paul's not giving us some views he's worked out for himself. He's passing on what has been told to him. This is the accepted language for handling of tradition. It's of primary importance because without this message, we don't have the fundamental essentials for faith. Do you understand that? It's impossible to come to faith if you can't affirm these things. These are the facts of the gospel. It's fundamental for and essential for the faith, for Christianity, for the church. If you don't preach the cross, the death and the resurrection of Christ, then you don't have the right cannot be saved without believing this message so it's essential so it's worth taking a look at and we're going to start wrapping up here in just a minute now what follows this is a very early summary of the church's traditional teaching and we're going to track through this uh, as the early church did this message is called a proclamation it's a gospel preached by the early church now in verse 3 it says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures now we're going to look at a few illustrations here and we're going to see in Acts chapter 8, verse 5, here's what, here's what Philip did. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began what? Proclaiming Christ to them. Did he go and tell them, just feel good about yourself, just be happy, you know, God just loves you and everything's great. No. He goes to Samaria and he begins proclaiming Christ. What did he proclaim Christ? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that has so much breadth, doesn't it? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So, what's that mean? I was a sinner, and I deserved death, and he died in my place. See? So, and we could go through all that, but I think you can see this. And naturally, we see this is what Paul and Barnabas had been doing on their missionary journey, Acts 15, 36. He says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which, mark this, we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. What word did they proclaim? Well, they started with, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul says, that's my main concern. See, that I I sowed those seeds of the gospel, now I want to go back and see how they sprouted. Because they will. If somebody really believes those things, confesses the the facts of the gospel, then they're truly saved. And they'll grow. Colossians chapter 128. um, We what? We proclaim him. How do you proclaim him? Well, I just said it a number of times. But you start with the death, burial, and resurrection, and then you continue with the teaching and to them to obey all that was commanded them. That's Matthew twenty-eight twenty. Right, that's the next part that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to give the gospel, and when they come to faith, that's how the church grows, by the way. It's not programs and special events and whatever. It grows because individuals in the church grow in depth, and then they go out with an understanding of what their job is, and they witness to their neighbors and their circle of influence and everything we talked about last week. As we think about that influence and your sphere and your lane that you're running in, God's put you in. And when you witness to those people, some will come to faith. Why? Because it's powerful. And when they come to faith, you teach them to obey everything else Jesus commanded. And one of those things is to start attending church and be part of uh, a, a flock of people who, who give themselves away for the gospel. And so Paul says, listen, we proclaim him. Admonishing every man and teaching every man all, with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete. So they come to faith and they begin to grow, but the idea is you continue to teach and they grow in depth and they become complete and, uh, in Him. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works in me. This is the, my life, Paul says. This is the reason why I, I exist. It's my main concern. I labor, I strive through the power of the Holy Spirit. How about First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9? For you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. So he took care of his own needs. We proclaim to you what? The gospel of God. So what was that? You know precisely what that was. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We declared to you the gospel of God, and we worked hard to make sure you didn't have to pay anything For us to do it. Then this last one where John says much the same thing as Paul does in our passage, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, he says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also. So John had not only seen Jesus die and rise, he also heard that from the witnesses who saw all of that as well. And we proclaim this to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Why? Because we've confessed and believed, have we not? We saw what happened and we understood all of its implication and we were willing to give up our life to get it. So how can someone be brought into fellowship with other believers and fellowship with the Father and fellowship with Jesus? Well, they have to believe and confess. They have to call upon the Lord for salvation. They have to say the same thing that the scriptures say. They have to affirm all that the resurrection affirms. See, as we, and, and as we think about this, you know, let's take a look at the gospel proclamation that's still the standard, and we're going to wrap up with this. Here's the first one. And, and this may be helpful to you as you think about witnessing. You know, when you come to faith here and we baptize you, before you get baptized, you, we meet together and we write out your testimony. Because this is, if you're a new believer, this is the first step in following in obedience is being uh, baptized. And from that water, you proclaim that you're born again because this is a witness that you are. Uh, Which is why that in general, as a philosophy of ministry, I don't baptize young children. Why? Well, because we don't know if they're going to be holding fast to the faith that was given to them, do we? We know that they have a faith that's acceptable to you. But we don't know if they have a faith that's acceptable to the Lord because that's what we want to wait. We want to see them begin to walk with the Lord themselves, and then we can affirm that they're born again. But when you get born again, you write your testimony out. And it, typical testimonies have a lot to do with personal experience. God really helped me. My life is much better now, and, and uh, I remember that I was a sinner, and, and the Lord saved me. And, and that's great, and that's true. The problem is, is when you give your testimony, if somebody hears it, they should be able to come to faith when they're done, done hearing it. How did you get redeemed? What did the Lord do for you? How did you know you were a sinner? And what did you say to him? See, this is the integral part of your, of, your, of your testimony that makes it powerful. Otherwise, you know, at the end of a baptismal service, somebody could come forward and receive Christ as your Savior, and I've seen that happen numerous times when I baptized someone, and they gave their testimony, and it wasn't even an invitation, and I walked out front, and some guy walks up to me. This happened many times. I walked up to somebody and goes, if that's salvation, I'm not saved like well let's solve that problem right now right because that's salvation that's what it looks like so this is super important beloved so he says this he says christ died for our sins according to the scripture so there's about four things here that we really need to know and make sure we communicate in the way that the lord opens the door for you as you establish that spiritual uh, conversation you're going to have to get to this point if you want it to be powerful and you want to see them redeemed you're going to get to this point and, and perhaps they, they want to they blow you off at first, you know, just make another appointment to see them again and say, hey, do me a favor, you know, read John chapter 3, ha- give them some homework, and then meet back with them and, and talk to them. But this has to be here. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. So that's to say that you call Jesus the Christ. That means that's his title. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. That's his true identity. And a proper presentation of the Gospel is going to draw that distinction. If you're saying the same thing that the Scriptures say, then you're going to confess That Jesus is the Messiah. And that's to say also that all men are sinful and that sin requires death. And that's a very important first step. Good news is not good news if people don't think they need it. Okay, if you think you're a good person and I say, you know, Jesus died for you, they're like, well, I didn't really need him to die I didn't ask him for him to die and I didn't really need him to because I'm a good person. The important part to understand is all men are sinful and that sin requires death. The wages of sin is death, right? All have fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. They're all at the same starting point. Some are relatively better than others, like the lady I was talking to you about. They're fairly moral, and they've got a fairly decent lifestyle. They don't do depraved things in their mind. But everybody's at the starting point, the same starting point as it relates to God's holiness. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Everybody. We talked about that. So a proper presentation of the gospel will draw that distinction. If you're saying the same thing about your sin, here it is, that the scriptures say you're going to know that you were worthy of death, and he took your death. See, And that's to say his death was an atoning death, too. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So that's to acknowledge, then, your dependence on Jesus' death as the satisfaction for your debt. See, He took your death. It has to be very personal. 1 John 2 2 says he himself is the propitiation. That is the word satisfaction. He paid the price for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for those of the whole world. In other words, the price on the cross was sufficient to cover the sin of every single person who has ever lived, but they're going to have to confess and believe. So to be saved, you have to say the same thing that Scripture says. If you are saved, you will say that he satisfied my sin debt cross is a starting point. The proper evaluation of every person's goodness is the cross that they deserved. That's the right evaluation. And finally, this clause is to say this was no afterthought. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In other words, a proper presentation of the gospel is going to draw that distinction. The saving death of Christ was foretold long before in the scriptures. It didn't just it wasn't an afterthought of God here at this last minute. Well, they're really terrible, so I'm going to have to do this. Slain, Peter says, before the foundation of the world. Remember Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man, as it talks about Jesus, there's a sermon being preached here. This man delivered over by market the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, you thought it was an accident. The crowd just got all testy with Jesus and decided to take Barabbas as the one that was released. We want to kill Jesus. That just kind of escalated to that point. This man who's resurrected was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless man and put him to death. So you're still just as culpable, but God planned it long ago, see. And Isaiah 53 would certainly be in Paul's mind. Now let's look at the second part of verse 4, that he was buried, two things. That's to say the burial of Jesus is a historical fact. A proper presentation of the gospel will draw this distinction. Every gospel refers to his burial. Everybody knows that he was buried. It's consistent with cultural precedent to take dead bodies down from the cross and bury them at that nightfall prior to the Sabbath. The process is well known. Joseph of Arimathea was there, assisted by Nicodemus, laid Jesus in a borrowed tomb. Everybody knew where it was. Even people that didn't like Jesus knew that he was in a tomb, and he was, and this is the next part, Jesus had indeed truly died. He was dead. He didn't bury a live person. And the, the proper presentation of the gospel, if you're saying the same thing about Jesus, that scriptures say, then you're going to have to say, Jesus was put to death for your sins, and that means he actually died. And according to the scriptures, it's implied here. So again, it's not, a, it's, it's not an afterthought. Then this last wonderful part of verse 4, the reason why we celebrate it all day today, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Four things. And this is to say that because of his verifiable death, the empty tomb is a well-known fact. It's not marginal. Both supporters and opponents of Jesus asserted Jesus was dead and was buried, and uh, supporters and opponents of Jesus both, uh, both affirmed that the tomb was empty. And a correct presentation of the gospel is going to say that. And that's also to say that death couldn't hold Jesus. See, proper presentation of the gospel is going to draw a very important distinction. And it's a key element of belief from Romans 10.9. His resurrection confirmed that he was sinless. Born of a virgin, by the Holy Spirit, Adam's sin, had no hold on Jesus. And since he was truly dead, his resurrection market was the reanimation of a corpse. That's the sticking point, isn't it? I have done hundreds of funerals in my time I have never seen a reanimation of a corpse, ever. And neither have you. Why? Because it's against the laws of nature that we understand. And that's precisely the point and why God raised Jesus from the dead. He saw no decay. He was raised to glorious life. And by trusting his resurrection, all who believe will escape sin's punishment and be raised to life. And I will say as a caveat, I've done hundreds of funerals. I've never seen the reanimation of corpse. But what I haven't seen, but I know has existed beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that the moment they were dead... If they were born again, their spirit was present with the Lord. That I know beyond a shadow of a doubt because of what Jesus has done. And that's a marvelous thing to think about. And Jesus was, it's important to remember this too, raised by the power of God. The power of God acted on him just like it acts on you through the presentation of the gospel, that vehicle by which you believe and make a volitional uh, statement of faith. The power of God goes to work on you just like it went to work on Jesus. Perfect, passive, indicative maximum possible emphasis the permanent results of the event that's why it's perfect it's so great in other words jesus the messiah will continue to be in the position of the risen lord forever he will never not be in that position and again it's just another affirmation your salvation is forever why because jesus's resurrection is forever and he promised that if you believe on him if he lives you will too so you're confirmed there forever And the perfect tense is used this way six more times just in this chapter, in verse 12, verse 13, 14, 16, 17, and 20, and only once in all the rest of the passages of Scripture. It's an important distinction to make. His resurrection verified everything God had said about him and everything he'd said about himself, and God, as a result of raising Jesus, has given him a name above every name and the right to judge. And again, it's to say, according to the Scriptures, it was no afterthought. A proper presentation of the gospel will draw this distinction. And a great saving act of God. You know, Jesus himself, before he went to the grave, said that Noah's, uh, Jonah's time in the belly of the fish was going to foreshadow how long he would be in the grave. I mean, he, he said up front, it wasn't an accident, maybe he was going to wait on God's good pleasure, maybe it will be five days, maybe it would be seven, you know, if it's a week. I mean, if you're raised within a week of the time you said you were going to, you know, in human terms, you're still a hero. If Jesus said three days, that's when I'm going to be raised You know, Psalm 1610, uh, David prophesied God's raising of Christ. Isaiah 53 speaks of his life after death. Listen, it's not a secret. The great saving act of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son Jesus is captured by Paul, handed down to the church in Corinth, and on down to us. Each statement has a huge implication connected to it, and they are what must be presented for a proper hearing of the gospel. They are the vehicle for salvation. There's a fundamental set of facts that took a broken and scattered group of followers of Jesus and turned them into martyrs for the faith. This is the fundamental set of facts on which the church was established. And beloved, if your testimony is going to be powerful on this Resurrection Sunday, it's going to have to include these things. These are the things it must include. Because people can't come to faith if they don't believe them. And they're not going to believe them if they don't get to hear them. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And so when you give that resurrection, uh, you include the resurrection, you know, that is the good news. It's the power of God that he took your place. But from the way many will react when you say it, it seems like the worst news of all. It doesn't matter. Because they think it's the worst news, you still give it out. Because it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an awesome time to be in your word. We're grateful for uh, the time that we could. remember the resurrection. We could celebrate it uh, at uh, sunrise service and, and just enjoy each other's fellowship later in breakfast and then throughout the services, we've just uh, wanted to magnify your name. You, what you've done is amazing, but it's also important that we understand salvation doesn't come, doesn't come any other way. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to breathe our air and drink our water and live on this earth. And thank you for him submitting his back to the whip and to the hands with nails and his body to the cross, his beard ripped out and spit on his face. That was our spit. That was our tearing his beard, our nails, our whip. That's what we deserved. And we certainly participated in our sinfulness before salvation. We understand we would have been right in that group. Thank you, though, Lord, that those things did not stop him. That he drank the cup you needed him to drink. He endured our shame and our sin and freely gave his life to deliver us. Our sin, our shame. We own that. And Father, thank you for raising him from the grave to prove that uh, he had power over death and, and hell for all who believe. And that's where it comes down to you. We don't always give an invitation. We will today. And it, it's not hard to give because I just gave you the gospel. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. There's a specific set of facts that has to be true. If those things are not true, if that's not where you are, then no matter what you said before, you're not born again. So you don't want to fall into the warning group. You want to fall into the group that regardless of how long you've been coming to church, maybe how, how much you've known about the Bible, how long you've grown up in it, you have to do those things. Christ died for your sins according to the scripture died for your sins and he was buried he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures do you believe that are you willing to confess that Jesus is Lord of you it's the right to rule everything he said about you is true and you have to obey if you're not willing to obey you're not you don't have salvation so let this day be the day You prayed those prayers today it's not necessarily the things that I've said but your own heart desire Before you leave fill out that card that's in the chair in front of you let me have that before you go i can pray for you and help you grow be our joy to know that so father thank you for this day Uh, certainly the things that follow are gifts from your hand the fellowship of family and the blessings of uh, a food around a table these are things you've established you're going to continue in the eternal state uh, with us but lord we give you thanks for that we thank you thanks that the grace that was purchased uh, for us by jesus even on the world the common grace that's given to the world that they can live in sin and not die immediately uh, is because of Jesus' powerful death, but that judgment is being saved up. So help us to be about giving the gospel out before it's too late, as Brezhnev's widow understood. Pray the holiness in the name of your son, Jesus, and forsake and all God's people said. Amen.